Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today on our episode is our clinical chief, Nick Smith. Good afternoon. And today we're going to talk about our point-of-care ultrasound program here at MCHD in relation to really the path that we've taken implementing focus in our EMS practice. Definitely some lessons learned here. We've got some preliminary data we want to talk about. We've got an abstract upcoming at the National EMS Physicians meeting in Austin coming up in January. So the gist of this for me is 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 why are clinical quality metrics important? And anytime you're looking at new technology and an implementation of a protocol, there's very unlikely any other option, and this is going to be muddy, you know, kind of a three steps forward, two steps back situation. If you expect anything else or somebody tries to give you a story that their program has gone just beautifully and smoothly, I don't know. I think I would have some doubt there. Ours isn't perfect. There were lessons learned. There are going to be lessons to be learned in the future, but that's 99.9% going to be the honest answer to all EMS and emergency medicine clinical initiatives, and we want to tell a true story here at MCHD. So um, let's review real quickly. You know, EMS and point-of-care ultrasound is definitely a hot topic. Absolutely. Uh, Fast exam. Some folks are using it for fast. Some helicopter services are using it look for, to look for intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Uh, lung exam, there was a recent um, article in Academic Emergency Medicine from uh, my alma mater up at uh, Indiana University where I trained in residency looking at lung ultrasound to diagnose acute pulmonary edema, potentially an additional uh, bit of information that we could use in our acute pulmonary edema patients. A lot of emergency department use now with ultrasound, I would say number one, two, and three is peripheral IV placement. Very, yep. Patient v- comfortability. Very, very common. And I would say that, you know, we can talk about why or why not that might be a, a good idea or not so good of an idea in the EMS setting. Um, folks are looking at optic nerve diameter and some other intraocular uh, pressure and intracranial pressure sort of uh, indirect measurements, maybe that could have a role one day in traumatic brain injury or head injury, especially with prolonged transports. Maybe if we're considering, you know, hypertonic saline or mannitol or even sodium bicarbonate in those folks and managing resuscitation of out of hospital cardiac arrest. And that's where our focus has been here in Montgomery County, really since we initiated an ultrasound program before I got here, really probably around the time or even before you got here. We, yep, we, prior both, to. we both started about the same time in 2016. Um, why are folks advocating for point-of-care ultrasound in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? And really, it it's bleeds over into the emergency department as well. And some of this data is old. Ochoa et al. from resuscitation in 1998, um, they looked at the time to parotid pulse recognition and palpation in healthy volunteers. And they took emergency nurses, ICU nurses, they took healthcare professionals, and over 40% of them took greater than five seconds to palpate a pulse. Does that 
fit your clinical history? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there are so many external factors that fit into that out of hospital cardiac arrest, you know, with family there and other first responders around and the myriad of things that have to take place that finding a, a pulse in five seconds in the field, I would say is often a, a favorable measure just uh, with everything else going on and that you have to take care of at that time. Yeah, and and Ochoa study was an ICU study. So there wasn't dogs barking, relatives distraught. We weren't stuck between a toilet and the bathtub as we so often are with our just really austere environment relative to an ICU for sure. Fast forward 20 years, Zingen et al., they found that 20% of patients who had a diagnosis of pulseless electrical activity by a pulse check had organized cardiac activity on ultrasound. So that's led to the, I would say, common uh, description nowadays of pseudo-PEA. In other words, Chief Smith checks a pulse, I don't feel it, I pop an ultrasound on and we see cardiac contractility. How do we reconcile that? And that is, that is you know, from from Dr. Weingart and MCRIT, popularized term pseudo-PEA, as in we thought it was pulseless activity with our hand. We saw an agonal rate of 50 on the monitor or 40 on the monitor. We don't feel anything femoral. We don't feel anything carotid with our fingers. Then we pop an ultrasound on, and what do we see? We see some squeeze. What do we do with those patients, and how, how do they fit into our classic ACLS algorithm that we've used for decades? And so bottom line is we know that manual pulse checks are slow and that they're likely inaccurate, and there are probably folks who have no pulse who have some contractility and their profound shock. And when we're talking about five seconds to get a carotid pulse in an ICU, if we extrapolate that and say it's probably twice as hard in the house, fair? Fair. Absolutely fair. Then we're looking at 10 seconds plus to decide whether or not we've got a pulse. If we don't, what does that equate to? That equates to a pause and probably starts to send our positive outcome chances down the hill, which we don't want. So let's talk about and describe to the listeners, because you've been a part of this in a couple different ways. How did we operationally implement our ultrasound program? What were the nuts and bolts? Yeah, so essentially we had um, sort of three key factors here. So the first was that we had a four-hour training session set aside for our specified um, expanded clinical providers or expanded authorization clinical providers, our captains, our district chiefs um, who attended this lecture, um, and hands-on training. So it was sort of a uh, didactic, dynamic training situation in which, you know, they have the, the knowledge from a lecture base and standpoint and uh, what that application would look like and then getting hands-on and then physically training with the butterfly IQ ultrasound that we use in the field. Um, the, the third thing that we kind of honed in on was a concentration on, uh, at least initially, on sub-xiphoid and the PSLA views. So we said we're going to be looking at the heart, so let's concentrate on looking at the heart. We're trying to utilize ultrasound in the field to minimize that incidence of pseudo-PEA. If we have pseudo-PEA, this is the profound shock patient, possibly not an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest per se, but someone who needs a norepinephrine drip, who needs you know, an epinephrine drip, depending on rate, depending on our differential diagnosis. Let's, let's try to hone in on these patients and, and look closer and see if we can more 
precisely tailor their uh, pharmacologic needs. But really, our training program has evolved even before Chief Smith, when you were a, a captain, you know, the, the, the district chiefs. We have ultrasound capability on our district chief, uh, district chief trucks only. So we have four of those in the field on any given day. Um, they're not on every truck. That's a really a cost um, issue. And some of our captains do ride up as district chiefs. So clinically, we've trained the captain's group and the district chief group. But we had ultrasounds in the service before uh, Chief, Smith, Chief Smith's arrival, before my arrival in, in approximately 2016. We had some old, older GE devices, and that was sort of an intermittent program that was successful initially, but there were issues with image capture download. So those were not saved to a HIPAA-compliant cloud. Those had to be manually downloaded from the machines, which made image management, the quality review side, quite difficult. And so in about 2020, um, when the Butterfly IQ came on the market, those were quite a bit cheaper than the uh, existing devices and really the cloud download option so that when our providers are on the scene and our you know clinicians are looking at the heart and they can upload from their truck Wi-Fi to the uh, protected butterfly cloud, I can review those images at my house on my Wi-Fi from my device really in real time. Um, so we've gone kind of up a hill, down a hill, back up a hill, and now we're sort of uh, managing the speed bumps as we move forward. So that's where we've been. GE, we couldn't access the images as well as we needed to. It made the quality review process really difficult. And honestly, if you put a roadblock in front of a provider, and this is me and the ED, this is our paramedics, whether we're talking in charges, captains, uh, district chiefs, if, if the process is difficult, i.e. I've got to capture an image, I've got to go back to a computer, I've got to upload an image in the middle of my busy shift where I'm, you know, busting a bunch of UHUs and, and I have no downtime and I'm sleep deprived, are, are you going to go download an image and, and comply with a process that has 26 extra steps? No. <laughs> the answer is no. And there's really no more to it. And that doesn't mean that the image isn't valuable. We just have to think about our quality implementations, our clinical implementations, our, our new devices, our new technology in relation to real life and what our folks are out there doing every day. So our ultrasound program here has gone in a bit of a, a fits and starts progression with a GE device, logistics were too difficult, butterfly, more inexpensive, easier access, easier image download for our clinicians, easier review for us on the quality side, but that leads us into some of the road bumps and the data-driven redirection that we've had to make post-Butterfly rollout. And I have to give uh, a ton of thanks and a ton of credit to Chief James Seek, who was in Chief Smith's role a couple years ago when we started to see some of these, hey, wait a minute, are we really doing the right thing here? And he, he was the one that brought that to Dr. Dixon and I and really shined a light on, hey, sometimes there are unattended consequences here. So what did we see when we looked at those images? Yeah, so uh, obviously, as in EMS and amongst the rest of medicine, the first thing we want to do is not cause harm to our patients. Um, but unfortunately, we saw 
pauses and that made us take a pause. Um, we saw that our data that we were able to collect and gather because of the implementation of the Butterfly IQ and the ability to have that review in ease amongst the, the quality and DCS group, um, we saw long pauses where hands were being off the chest for far greater than the uh, AHA's recommended 10 second pause time. And uh, that gave us a lot of concern. If you're gonna put something in the mix with the tried and true, it can't disrupt the tried and true. And we know that hands off chest time, the longer we're off, the poorer the outcomes are. Regardless of whether or not we're looking for pseudo PEA or not, we cannot introduce a device, a treatment, a pharmacologic treatment, uh, an assessment tool, you name it. If we put it in the middle of standard of care and it disrupts what we know standard of care is, like Chief Smith said, we have to take a pause. And at the same time, you know, look at the literature and look at, hey, what's everyone else seeing and what's what's going on out there? And there's some pretty powerful evidence that says, hey, this didn't only happen to us. Uh, Clattenburg in resuscitation 2018, a uh, couple papers from UCSF looking at point of care ultrasound and cardiac arrest in the emergency department. And what did they see? They see long, they saw longer pauses just like we did. Now they did a second study and they added a very specific training piece along with what they called the CASA protocol or the cardiac arrest sonographic assessment protocol. And Hey, guess what? If you train a little harder, do your pause rates and your pause links go down? Yes, and that makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. And what's the CASA protocol for the listeners out there? They look for three things. They look for pericardial effusion. They look for signs of right heart strain to suggest massive PE. And then they look for contractility. Now, in the EMS setting, really, we're looking for contractility and cardiac activity only. But the point being is that they said, hey, we're seeing longer pauses with this device. Let's train harder. Let's streamline our approach and make a very, very specific approach. Effusion, heart strain, activity. And it's a model for really anything we do in EMS or emergency medicine. If you train harder on it and you streamline your approach, your efficiency is going to go up. Uh, Badra in resuscitation 2018, they looked at what they termed the POCUS pulse check, and they found that healthcare providers were as quick and more accurate with less variability using carotid ultrasound as opposed to manual pulse checks, which pretty interesting. And they that was not EM physicians. That was a group of paramedics, nurses, uh, healthcare providers, wide array. Um, and they found that, hey, wait a minute, maybe popping an ultrasound on the neck where you've got your vasculature just underneath the skin might be a little bit better than putting your fingers in the groin looking for ephemeral pulse or even on the neck looking for a carotid pulse. So when you pair the Clattenburg papers, the Badra paper, and you say, hey, maybe this carotid spot's a good spot, and then we move and fast forward to 2022, Kang in resuscitation looks at uh, carotid pocus pulse checks in the ED prospectively, and what did they find? They found that carotid pulse checks were quicker than manual. So when you put all this together, what we decided, and this was uh, hours of discussion, first of all, it shouldn't surprise us that 
trying to get a subxiphoid or a parasternal long axis view during an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest cause prolonged pauses. That's been seen in the ED and in other spots. Uh, we did increase our training. We did try to use the same approach that Clattenburg did to decrease their pauses with more training and more direct feedback to our district chiefs. That was part of this program. But we paired that with this carotid data and said, hey, maybe that's a better spot. Speak to it as a medic and someone who's done this in the field as opposed to, you know, my experiences in the emergency department and it's quite sterile and pristine and I got lots of help and lots of light. Talk about why carotid from your actual field experience, uh, Chief, is just night and day easier than trying to get a subxiphoid or a parasternal long axis view. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of a multi-part thing, right? Um, like I spoke about earlier, the chaos of the situation uh, can be ever-present in an unknown field scenario, uh, whether that's a house, a public building, any, any location whatsoever. Um, additionally, you have a, usually a, a vast array of first responders, that's our FRO partners, um, other medics, EMTs, uh, you know, district chief in the field. Um, you have a lot of people there, you have a lot of equipment, you have the patient, hopefully, uh, if they meet that criteria on the Lucas device, um, which can really limit your, your access points in trying to get in there amongst all of our uh, FROs and EMS personnel working. Uh, the Lucas device is on. You've got uh, either IO or IV access that you want to be cautious of. And then on top of that, you have to not disrupt the flow of that, get in there, and uh, get your, your ultrasound view. Um, and with the parasternal view, it's quite difficult when you have a provider at the head, they are maintaining airway, you have the Lucas device on, um, trying to gain access from that angle, very, very difficult. Same thing can be said of the subxiphoid view where uh, you, know, you have that patient care aspect going on, those providers who need to continue to do their work and you need to try to snake in there and, and get that view, very, very difficult. Um, in general, where you have two or three providers on the lower anatomical portion of the patient uh, providing their roles in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, uh, you have one at the head who is working on maintaining that airway. Uh, additionally, you have a very easily accessible, exposed spot on the lateral aspect of the neck where you can take your ultrasound device and very easily find that landmark, place it, and get your view. And I would throw in the last piece, and that is everything's bigger in Texas, and so body habitus becomes an issue with the subxiphoid view as well. Uh, bowel gas, uh, it's just it's tough sometimes for all those logistical reasons that Chief Smith mentioned, plus body habitus as far as being able to get even a couple chambers, let alone a good subxiphoid four-chamber view in the floor of the bathroom in and out of hospital cardiac arrest, whereas the neck is right there. It's the least crowded of the crowded spots. Uh, we don't have a Lucas in the way. We don't have a belly in the way. We don't have bowel gas in the way. So as we moved through this process, we were actively reviewing the data, subjectively really initially, moved objectively as we became concerned. So Chief Seek and I started with, hey, let's take a look at these pictures. Man, these pauses are longer than 10 seconds. We need to maybe be a little more directed a little more intentional 
let's come up with some data collection sheets. Let's come up with some uh, goals. Let's, let's look and see really how we're performing, not just, hey, this doesn't feel right, but let's look objectively. And combined with the literature review, we decided to make a protocol change because we wanted to collect accurate data and we knew that the pauses were prolonged in our cardiac view protocol as it was pre-June of 2022. So we made the protocol change in June of 2022. Our data collection period was January to February of 22 to February of 23. And we put that carotid switch right there in the middle so we could look at, hey, how did our pause length rate change? How did our accuracy change? So what we defined as uh, pause delays were any clips longer than 10 seconds. And we said, hey, if you're off the chest longer than 10 seconds, that's potentially deleterious to the patient. We didn't know that. So we had 177 patients over that little over a year period, 144 cardiac, 90 carotid clips. And we just looked at those and said, how many of these have pauses longer than 10 seconds? What's the percentage? And shockingly, the percentage of pauses longer than 10 seconds in the cardiac group was over half, 52% of them. So the decision to make the change, we felt very strongly was the right thing to do. Absolutely. After the change to carotid view only, that dropped from 52% to 32%. So still not where we would want it to be, but definitely an improvement, still something that we're actively educating on, uh, working to study, have future plans in the works for increased training. And we're, we're not done yet, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. The second piece that was encouraging to me was we also had our viewers look at the images to say, hey, did we see what we thought we were seeing? And for cardiac, that's at least two chambers. For carotid, that's two pipes. And our accuracy in obtaining cardiac views was about three quarters. 76% of those, we saw what we thought we saw. When we moved to the carotid views, the neck, shallow, look, just looking for two pipes, no body habitus, no lucas, our accuracy increased to almost 90%, uh, 88% accuracy. So our preliminary rough data says less pauses with carotid views, better accuracy with carotid views. So we're moving in the right direction. We've got education planned next month. We're still not where we want to be. We're going to talk about this in Austin at the NEMSP meeting with our, our rough preliminary data, but we really want to move towards a full peer-reviewed project because we believe this is vital information and, and really a, a, an excellent lesson for all of EMS. And there are a lot of folks out there buying ultrasound machines, um, you know, right now. And if we can share even our lessons learned with others, we feel like that's, uh, that's where we should be in this in this uh, process. So what do we do now and where are we going to go? Well, we still know that manual pulse checks are slow and inaccurate. So we feel like ultrasound has a role. It just has to be managed and taught, trained with quality oversight. It can't be a situation where you roll the basketballs out on the floor and you don't coach the team and you don't have referees and you don't have a structure. We've got to do those things. Pseudo-PEA exists. We're still not sure clinically what that means, and we've definitely seen those. I know you've taken care of those yes. where we've moved from ACLS to 
septic shock, a little different treatment paradigm, correct? Absolutely. Um, and so what's our job now? What are we doing? Well, quality monitoring of new initiatives is key. So we've got a whiteboard full of plans for this one. We know that we've got room to grow and room to do better, and we're still working towards it. Any clinical rollout, pharmacology, procedure, technology, even operational changes, dispatch changes, I mean, y you name it. When we roll something out, what's a guarantee? Uh, un unintended consequences, there's, right? There's going to be road bumps, yeah. There's going to be things we didn't anticipate. And if you think that they're not going to show up, you're just you're mistaken. Even with the best laid plans, the best preparation, something somewhere is going to happen that you don't expect. And if you don't monitor it, you may not see it. And then you may be doing harm with a process or a procedure that seems like a great idea. And I, I still believe ultrasound is a great idea. I'm still pro EMS ultrasound. I believe it can give us vital, quick, inexpensive, practice-changing information. But it can't get in the way of hands on chest, yeah. compression fraction, early defibrillation. If it gets in, way, in the way of those things, those things we know help. It just cannot get in the way. So we've moved toward carotid ultrasound here at MCHD. We feel like it's a better out-of-hospital cardiac arrest option for the reasons we talked about. But how we implement that pulse check, how we manage those pseudo-PEA patients, really there's two questions that still exist there. What's the safest way for us to use it to evaluate for contractility? And then once we see contractility in a pseudo-PEA situation, what do we do with those patients? And we're managing those patients now with shock patients, but you know, the question often gets asked, do we still do compressions? We can't feel a pulse, but we see a pulse. What do we do with that? And those answers, we still don't know. And there are a lot of uh, people heaps smarter than me that don't know the answer to that question and are unsure. So. Uh, there's there's information to collect and data collect to collect there so anything you want to add before we wrap up chief yeah i'd say just echoing and mirroring your sentiment of the uh anticipating of unintended consequences you know at the end of the day everything we do is to put the patient first and we uh, have a baseline of the uh, interventions and the initiatives that we know are well studied and we know that they work for our patients the compressions defibrillation um, everything you mentioned there uh, to provide high quality CPR to uh, our uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And this is just, uh, you know, another another tool in the toolbox and in, in our capabilities and trying to manage that subset of patients in which we can identify no contractility versus uh, ultrasound contractility and what our next steps are there and how that plays into uh, the role as a whole clinically. But at the end of the day, we do have our baseline and uh, we're just hoping that this is a great supplemental tool for uh, how we operate in, in our practice. So hopefully we'll be back with better and more refined data soon. This is a work in progress. Again, I couldn't thank Chief Seek enough for really spearheading our initial dive into this and for really finding these pauses and saying, hey, Doc, we come take a look at this. We might need to talk. And then, you know, Chief, Seek or Chief Smith has assumed that role, and we're continuing to work on those project, this project together as a – you know, a clinical team. And it's a, it's a pretty decent roadmap for how a lot of these clinical initiatives are going to work. They're going to be bumpy. They're going to be difficult. And that's doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. It just means that oversight 
and the insight and the ability to, for us to say, hey, we got to look at this, look at it closely and make changes when we need to. That's vital for folks out there in similar roles. So as always, thanks for listening. We appreciate y'all joining us every month. Please subscribe wherever you watch or listen, YouTube or podcast. Leave us a like or a review, five stars. I like five-star reviews. I'm uh, very partial to those. If you have ideas for future podcasts, future topics, send us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. I like to try to respond to all those. It's cool to get input and feedback from across the state, nation, world. I had an email with Matt Wilkinson Stokes just this week, our past guest from Australia. He's way down under doing excellent and he sent me an idea for a podcast it's going to take me a while to dig through matt so if you're listening i promise i'm going to try but you sent me a, a fastball so thanks for listening thanks chief smith for joining us thanks for having me. we'll be back with another episode soon this podcast was brought to you by the montgomery county hospital district texas production and editing by andrew adams questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.